at the beginning of this series, what we want to do is just plant this idea uh, of there is a king. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but we don't have one in the United States, so we don't really talk about a king, but that's actually true around the world. Not many people are talking about a king anymore. In fact, we have that graphic up, up on the screen there. This, I was looking this week on Google, and uh, in the last 200 years, this is how much talking about a king has dropped in our world. It's just really less common. Now, if Prince Charles, Prince William, Prince Harry into becoming a king in these next few years, then, of course, maybe we'll have some more talk about that, at least in the tabloids. But here's what I want you to know. The Bible talks about a king. And the Bible says our understanding of a king is going to be crucial for all eternity. So if you're following along, here's the sentence we're going to be thinking about these next few weeks. There is a king who changes everything. There is a king who changes everything. And we're going to see how he even changes the way genealogies were written today. But there is a king who changes everything. Now, again, uh, I don't know when you think about genealogies, but why, why does Matthew start his gospel with a genealogy? Now, if you're following along, one of the things I want you to see today is that Matthew writes to show that Jesus is the Messiah and king, if you're following along. He is the Messiah. He, he writes it to show that he is the Messiah and the king. Now, for us, when we see genealogies, I, I know there's a growing interest in genealogies in our country. There's even TV shows being made about it. But for the most part, we don't think it's that important or we don't place as much importance as a Jewish person would. For instance, if Matthew is going to claim that Jesus is the one, most Jewish people would say, prove it. And they knew that one of the ways that he had to prove it was whether or not his bloodline went all the way back, not only to Abraham, but to David. And so we're going to see that in just a minute. In fact, would you read with me in that first grade box? I, I put it in the box so we can read off the same translation. Let's read this out loud. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, so for Jewish people, it was very important that you were able to present your genealogy. And a genealogy was required to own property. In the Holy Land there, if you didn't, weren't able to show documents that could show uh, that your family line went back to where the property was originally given, you, couldn't, you weren't legit. Also, different tribes in Israel had different privileges. So, for instance, if you wanted to be a priest, you could not be a priest unless your bloodline descended from Levi. Uh, now, are you ready for it? Unless you had Levi's genes. <laughs> so there was a sense of importance in all that. And what I want you to see today is that Jesus is... Very, he's the Messiah, but there's a specific part of his being a Messiah that we're going to focus on in these four weeks. And so uh, let's just dig right in. What I want you to see today is that this Christmas season, we have hope as we look at Jesus' genealogy because I want to point out at least three things in his genealogy that give us hope. The first one is two key ancestors. The second is three periods of history. And the last is five unlikely women. So I want to talk about the fact that Jesus is a king who changes everything. And first, let's look at his two key ancestors. As I already said, you notice there in that first uh, gray box there, it says that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you're following along in the notes, Jesus descended from David and Abraham. 
Jesus descended from David and Abraham. If you're Jewish, and even if you're Arab, you can trace your bloodline back to Abraham. But Jewish people place great pride in that. What not many Jewish people could do was trace their bloodline back to Abraham and David. David had royal blood, and that was something that, again, they were looking for. Everyone knew that the Messiah, at least in Israel, the Messiah was going to be the son of David. In fact, they, a descendant of David. In fact, even the common people, even though the religious leaders did not accept that Jesus was the son of David, the common people would often re- refer to him that way. I was reading where a blind man was by the side of the road, and he heard that Jesus was passing by. And what does he cry out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What's he saying? I think you're the one. I think there's some credibility to this idea that you may be the Messiah. So again, if you're following along, notice that David's kingdom and throne will endure forever. This is why this is so huge, because God had promised, he'd prophesied that David's kingdom and throne will endure forever. Now to the right, I put 2 Samuel 7. That's where this idea really comes from. If you look up here on the screen, what I want you to see, this is what God said to David. He said, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. In other words, he's saying, look, this is going to actually happen from your line, from your own flesh and blood. And then verse 16, he goes further. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established. How long, friends? Forever. And this is not like sometimes people say in poetry. God meant forever. Therefore, even though we don't talk about kings much, we better get used to it. Because God has in plan the idea that there's going to be a king forever and it's going to affect our lives. If you're following along, here's what I hope you'll see is that God keeps his word. Not once upon a time. God keeps his word. Sometimes, you know, Matthew, why didn't Matthew start and say, once upon a time? You know why? Because when most of us hear that, we tend to think, okay, well, that's a good story, but it's not true. But I want you to see right here that what Matthew is doing in his genealogy is he's saying, look, I'm not talking some kind of up in the cloud stuff. I'm talking human history. Check it out. This is a legal deal. God actually did this in history. And this is where things get dicey for a lot of people. Tim Keller says this, Christianity declares God has done something in history. He has broken in. Certain historical events have happened, and how you respond to them will be the basis on which you rise and fall. Christianity says God has broken into history. He has done something in history that changes everything, and you'll be judged on the basis of how you respond to it. He said, several months ago, I did an evening service in which I was making the case that the historical documents, the New Testament, the Gospels, were historically accurate, that they really were, that someone really was born the Son of God and who was raised physically from the dead. These really happened. People really saw them. There was a man at the service that I spoke who wrote me a letter afterwards and said, you know, it wouldn't be so offensive if you had just said you personally believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. 
But he went on to say, that wouldn't be offensive, but you kept trying to say these were historical facts. You kept trying to say that he was historically and literally and physically raised from the dead. You kept trying to say he really was God born in a manger. He says, what's so offensive about that is that if these things are historical fact, then that's insisting we all believe them, not just you. This guy got it. He understood that if this is true, this is true for all of us. This is history, friends. God is doing something. He keeps his word, not once upon a time. The second thing, though, is these three periods of time. Do you notice verse 17 with me? If you jump ahead, we'll come back and look at some of the verses there between these. But here's what it says in verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to the Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So if you're following along, the idea here is that these three periods each have 14 generations each in them. And not only that, but if you actually understand how the original readers would have understood this genealogy, they would have remembered that this genealogy covers 2,000 years. And in those 2,000 years, if you're following along in the notes, there are stretches of darkness and silence. There are stretches of darkness and silence. Let me just illustrate. If you look at your Bible there, to the left of Matthew or 2, uh, if you look to the left, are there, is there at least one blank page? Am I making this up? Do you guys have that in your Bibles? Do you have a blank page to the left of Matthew there between Malachi and Matthew? You guys can like look at me and just nod a lot. Okay. The reason why is this. Because between those two testaments in history, between Malachi's words being recorded and Matthew's, there's 400 years. 400 years before God's heard. And that's a long time of silence, wouldn't you say? Darkness and silence. And, um, and so what, what does all that mean? Well, what he's going to show is this, is even though there may be times, stretches of darkness and silence, where it's hard to understand, is God doing something, is he not? If you're following along, here's the next line in the notes. God is always working. God is always working. Jesus said this in John 5, 17, if you look up here on the screen, see what he says. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. But why does it seem like he's not sometimes? Why does it seem like he's silent? I was thinking about this. When I was a young dad, I watched the way my kids would grow in their understanding and maturity, and I could see in the early phases of their life some interesting things that kind of reflected on me. Uh, you know, they had these little white blankets they would put over their heads sometimes. And I noticed that even though I'd be standing right there, that uh, when they'd put that blanket over their head, they thought that because they couldn't see me, I couldn't see them. I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing. And then a little bit later, sometimes as they put those blankets over their head, they thought that even though I had just been standing right next to them, that because they couldn't see me, I wasn't there. And I found sometimes in life that because God is an invisible God, who sometimes we only see his fingerprints and see evidences, that sometimes I think he's not working. He's not there anymore. He's still there. He's still working. 
And that's what this shows. Now, I want to just in that gray box out to the right, I want to show you something. Um, again, how the early readers of this would have understood this. You'll notice in the notes there, those gray boxes, there's three 14s, okay? And these three 14s uh, represent this first one, for those of you listening online or those of you who are watching this on the whiteboard, this first line uh, that, that I'm going to draw, I'm going to draw something so you can draw it on your notes, that when most Jewish people would have heard from Abraham to David a sense of pride would have welled up in them. The whole Israelite nation was founded. Abraham was their forefather, and they would have thought about David, David being one of the most precious people in their lineage, so they would have drawn a line straight up like this. If you want to draw, draw a line straight up, they would have said, man, those were, those were really, really important times. Not that there weren't some squigglies in there, but for the most part, straight up. Then they would have uh, remembered that uh, Solomon, for a time, uh, things kind of really the most prosperous when David, he had conquered his enemies and time of peace was Solomon. But not long after David, Solomon would begin to turn from God and walk in pride. And so would the people of Israel. And so I'm drawing a line angling all the way down to the right of the last thir- 14 there. So this line here, I'm drawing this line this way. And they would have remembered that from David to the exile, you know what exile means? It means that the Israelites, because of their continual, stubborn, prideful disregard for God and his work in their lives, they would be eventually, after hundreds of years of God's patience, they would be kicked out of their nation. And they'd be exiled to Babylon and Assyria. And those, it was just a very, very quieting time. And he says, Okay, I'm talking about that time in history, and every Jewish person would have gone, those were some really dark times. Those were not good. But then he said, from the exile to the Messiah. I'm going to draw a straight line again. Because, again, every Jewish person knew that when the Messiah came, that was going to be when things looked up again. Now, to understand this, He's not only trying to paint a picture. This was actually a teaching device. I want you to know that the way he's doing this genealogy is he's taking some liberty. There's, there's more than 14 actual generations in there, but he's doing this in order to remind them of those 14 generations that, that will help them remember. He's saying, look, I'm not going to include every last person, but I want you to know these were some of the key people in that line. And then also... He's, he wants to show something. He keeps saying 14, 14, 14. What in the world does that mean? Well, let me just do a little math lesson here for a second. Here's, here's an idea for you. 14 is 7 plus what, friends? 7, right? We're doing good. 14 is 7 plus 7. 14 is 7 plus 7. Six sevens. And Jesus then is the seventh seven. Now, when you think about seven in the Bible, God created the world in how many days? Seven days. And on the seventh day, what he had done was so complete, it was so comprehensive that he rested, right? It shows a completeness 
perfection. And what this is saying is that God's always been working and he's always been heading towards something. And that is his greatest work, his most perfect work, his most complete move in human history is right here. Jesus is the seventh seven. And because this has been done for us, this is good news. This is good news that God's opened the way. So that's the three periods of time, three periods of history. Let me mention one more. is the five unlikely women. The five unlikely women. Now, if you're following along here, I want you to notice that I've listed those five unlikely women out to the right in the gray box. I'll come back to that in a second. But these are all found in verses 2 through 16. And you can actually, in my Bible, I actually went and underlined these names of these women. Just uh, each time I see it in the future, I'll remember that this is not normal. Genealogies, even in Israel today, do not include women. The way that you thought of your genealogy was through men. Women and children were just less important in the way that a lot of things were counted. I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying it's the way it was. And therefore, women were not allowed to give a testimony in the court of law because they were not, it was not considered reliable. Women were not counted in genealogies, things like that. So Matthew, he changes that. Jesus changes that. And what I want you to see is that the women, if you're following along, are included in Jesus' genealogy. Make note of that. Second, I want you to see another thing that's included in Jesus' genealogy. Outsiders. Outsiders are included. What do I mean by that? I mean foreigners. People that aren't from Israel. Another way of saying it is Gentiles. Remember back when we studied Galatians, we did this a lot of weeks. Gentiles are people that aren't what? Jewish, right? And so what's going on here, I want you to notice this. If you're Matthew and you're trying to tell people that Jesus is the Messiah, don't you want to absolutely impress them with your very best stuff? Don't you want to be able to say, let me show you how pure the bloodline is. Let me show you just how perfectly I can execute a genealogy. Instead, he, he throws women in. What are you doing, Matthew? That's just like, that's not normal. He throws in outsiders, foreigners. What are you doing? You know that we, it's just about being Jewish, isn't it? And the third one is this. He includes moral failures in the genealogy. Moral failures in the genealogy. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was sharing my genealogy with you, I would share the stuff I'm proud of. Okay, let me just give you an example. When I was a kid, show and tell, this was one of the best things up my sleeve. Do we have the picture? This is William Brewster who came over on the Mayflower with William Bradford. You've heard of Brewster and Bradford maybe signing the Mayflower Compact. Even if you haven't, I want you to be impressed by this, okay? <laughs> now, because of that history, they came, you know, in 1620. I just want you to know that, that my grandfather on my mother's side is William Brewster VIII. And man, did I save that for show and tell. What I didn't necessarily tell you is that on my father's side, my great-grandfather was a womanizer and beat his kids. See, I'm not going to tell you that kind of stuff, right? As easily. But the truth is, is that that stuff is true about our family. 
Now, what I want you to see is that Matthew, far from hiding it, includes it. Why? I want you to see, as I told you to have your Bibles ready, I want you to turn to Matthew 9. Matthew 9. And Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has royal blood, but he is coming to usher in a different kingdom than we thought. He's changing all that. He's not doing kingship like everybody does kingship. So what I want you to see this morning is that the reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write the genealogy this way is because this is Matthew's story. This is what Jesus did in Matthew's life. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, sometimes called Levi, Levi's genes, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, you and I can, we probably can't appreciate this. When we hear tax collector, we think IRS or something like that. And we may still go, like that, okay? But it's not the same. In Israel, if you were a tax collector, it basically means that you were a sellout. It means that you took your inside knowledge of your community and the people you knew, and then you, for a price, would be paid by Rome to collect taxes for Rome, which they already despised having to pay, and you would use your inside information to get as much money out of your friends, family, and community as you could, pay Rome their part, and you get to keep all the rest that you could get off the top. These people were considered scumbags of the highest order. These people were considered, don't let them come to my house. They're, they're cheats, they're liars, and many times they were. That was their character. Jesus says, follow me. Now notice what goes on. He has his friends. He wants his friends to meet Jesus. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples, many. When the Pharisees, the religious teachers, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, not all kinds of impressive religious activity to somehow satisfy God. For I have not come to call the righteous, friends. What's the next two words? But sinners. He's announcing that he's a different kind of king. And if you're following along, what I want you to see is that Jesus comes as a humble king, as a humble king who changes everything. Friends, think about this. If Jesus was willing to leave heaven and be associated with the likes of us, wow. Do you know these women, these five women? Have you ever heard these stories? The one out to the right first, Tamar, found in verse 3. You can read about her in Genesis 38. Most pastors will not preach on that passage because it's so embarrassing. Tamar, because her husband had died, decided that she was going to carry on her family line and, and have children. And so she set it up so that she got pregnant by her father in law. It's in the Bible. Check it out. She's in Jesus' family tree. 
What's going on there? It's quite a story. Rahab was one of the people that lived in Jericho before the Israelites were to take it over. She was, uh, everybody know what she is? Prostitute that helped two spies, hid the spies. Eventually she would be carried safely to Israel and she would marry one of the Israelites there and she became part of Jesus' family tree. She'd been a prostitute. Third lady's name there was Ruth. And if you've never heard Ruth's story, I recommend going to our archives online and listening to the message series Steve did five years ago, uh, the summer of 2010. It's a powerful story of redemption. Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. In fact, worse, she was a Moabitess, which meant that she wasn't even allowed into the temple area because of her, the Moabites had refused to help the Israelites and therefore the law had so that that you could not come much closer because of that. But Ruth is somehow weaved into Jesus' family tree. That's amazing. And then you notice the fourth woman, I've listed her actual name, but that's not how the genealogy says it. This would have been really rough. You know, when everybody thinks David is our hero, David's the king we really are proud of. No, this is kind of an interesting thing. It says Solomon's You know, dad was David, but his mom was Uriah's wife. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah taken out at the front lines. It was a very humbling, failing time in David's life. And somehow God redeemed that, and Solomon was part of Jesus' family tree, and so was Uriah's wife. Interesting. Why is Matthew doing this? The last one is Mary. And Mary, we're going to look at more in the next week or two, but what I want you to see is I believe the reason why Matthew also wrote the genealogy like this is to say Jesus' birth was different. Therefore, you even know his genealogy was different. And that's going to get explained in the next week when we look at the next few verses. So if you're following along, here's what I hope you see is that his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom that he's come to bring is open to all who will humble themselves. His kingdom is open to all who will humble themselves. Here's what I want you to see, friends. Jesus in Matthew's gospel is going to talk about a kingdom over and over again, over 70 times. So he knows he's a king who's bringing a kingdom, but he wants to show how this kingdom isn't like the kingdoms of this world. So how does he come on the scene in chapter 4? Repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He starts his most famous sermon, Matthew 5, 3. Everybody's wondering, what's he going to say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And on and on he'll go talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like The kingdom of heaven is like, and the way he explains it, it sounds so much different than the kingdom everybody's used to. And over and over again, he doesn't act like the king that people were expecting. He doesn't come in all this brute force and power up on people. He comes in a lowly way. He responds to people. He he doesn't try and just hang out with the high people. He is an incredible king. And then I want you to open your, your Bible still with you. You turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. 
Okay? He's been talking about the kingdom. He's been talking about the kingdom over and over again. And finally, the disciples go, okay, we're, we're starting to understand that you're about a kingdom. You're about coming to reign and rule. You're bringing a kingdom to this earth that's different than anything we've ever known. So look at what they do. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And by that, they mean like among us guys. Okay? He called the little child to him and placed the child among them. Again, when we think of this, we go, oh, how cute. In those days, children were to be seen but not heard. Children were not considered important. They were considered lowly. There was not the same esteem that many of us know through the Judeo-Christian influence in our country. There was not that. Children were considered less significant. Jesus goes, come here. Calls him over, and then look what it says, verse 3. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never get in on the reign of God in your life. What's it mean to be like little children? Does it mean to be childish or childlike? Childlike, right? What's childlike? They know how dependent they are. They know that everything they have comes from their parents or grandparents or loved ones, they know it. They know they're reliant. There's a dependency. He says, unless you realize how dependent you are on everything that I can do for you, you'll never be able to take part of this. Look at verse four. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that? Who's willing to take the low place and whoever welcomes one such child that may not be considered important in this world in my name welcomes me. He's saying, I'm here to bring a different kind of kingdom. And the only way you can be part of this kingdom is if you'll be humble like I've been humble with you. The kingdom that I've come to bring runs on humility. Now, I don't know about you, but I really need a king like that because I realize that the problem in this world that not only I've created, but other people have too, is that if you were to look at my heart and see that there is a throne in my heart, instead of Jesus sitting on the throne, my life would be described before I met Jesus as me sitting on the throne. I was going to be king. I was going to call the shots. I was going to lead my own life. The Bible says is that that is what Satan ascended to do in his pride. I will be like God. And that's what Adam and Eve and every person since has done. All of us have been filled with pride and our lives have been led by pride. And therefore God had to do something. He had to change everything. So he sent a Messiah who would be the son of David, who would be a king, who would come not like anyone expected him, but he would come humbly. And not only would he come humbly, but he would demonstrate that humility to the absolute farthest degree by walking up a hill, not only becoming a human being. Can you imagine how humbling it was to leave the glories of heaven and become like us? And then among being human beings, he became the servant of all. 
And then among human beings, he died the most shameful, lowly death ever died on a cross. Down, 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 Jesus went. And the Bible says, because of this, God highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And even in heaven, Jesus is the humble Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Bless his name. What a king. So I want to just ask you this morning, where does this find you? You know, this week as I was working on the message, <laughs> uh, I flew off the handle. Trish and I were driving somewhere. And I know this will shock you because you think that I walk with Jesus so closely that this never happens. But I flew off the handle at her in the car and I had just been studying for this message on humility. I'm reading a book right now on humility. And then I see that. And I realized it was just plain old-fashioned pride. And I thought, oh, man, I don't know if I'll ever be able to live a Christian life. And then I remembered this, that because a number of years ago, I humbled myself and invited Jesus to come in and be the king of my life. He now lives inside of me. And that doesn't mean that everything I do is him, but that when I do things like I did in the car the other day, what's the answer? To humble myself before him so that his grace and his reign in my life can continue to work out. And that's what he wants to do. So if you're following along in the notes, here's the prayer before we take communion that I want to suggest to you. King Jesus, teach me to humble myself for I am proud. King Jesus, teach me to humble myself for I'm proud. Where might that be for you? Some of you, for months, years, Jesus has been reaching out to you, and he's been saying, will you humble yourself before me? Will you let me rule and reign in your life? Will you let me give you the gift of grace and a new life so I can come and live inside of you? And you've said, no. I don't want you to do that. That's pride, friends. And if you don't change your mind about that, Jesus will never be the king of your life, and you'll never be part of his kingdom. And he doesn't want that. Maybe you've already trusted Christ. He now lives inside of you, but you have fly-off-the-moment handles with your family, like I did. And you go, what do I do about that? You know what you do about that? Your family desperately needs to see the humble king living in you, being allowed to rule the day. And he will always urge you to go back and make that right and admit where you've been proud. And maybe, like me, you realize that each day you have to keep practicing this and starting when you get out of bed, just get down on your knees. So as we get ready for communion, I just want to share one last thought for you. When we gather here and we sing and we pray, we listen to the word of God, that's important stuff. It really is. But when we're doing it, how are we thinking? Are we thinking, God, give me a spiritual, you know, ooh, give me the chills. Are we thinking about having a spiritual experience? Are we thinking about worshiping the king? Years ago in Wisconsin, when I was at a seminar, this guy said, I know none of us have seen a king or been around a king but why don't you close your eyes right now and imagine that Jesus the King is walking right past you. What would be the most proper posture for you? And he just invited us to respond.
And I remember thinking to myself, man, I've seen what people do around kings. People get down, they bow with their face to the ground and say, you're the great one, I am the lowly one. Be the king of my life. And I remember thinking, man, that's what God wants me to do regularly is just depend on him, humble myself in him. And you and I, sometimes when we're worshiping, we need to know that even though we can't see it right now, there is a throne above us where there is a humble king who is coming back someday and he wants our worship and he delights in our worship and we can humble ourselves now. This song we're gonna sing is called I Surrender. While communion is being passed out, let me explain. These guys will come up and down the rows with trays of grape juice and bread. It's a double cup. If you are wondering whether or not I should take it, here's all you need to know, even if you're not part of this church. If you've trusted Christ, if you've let the humble king come into your life and do what he said he could do because he's done what he's done, then please take communion. If you aren't at that point yet, you could actually do that today. It's not too late. You're not too far gone. Remember, Jesus came to seek and to save people like you and me. But if you're not ready to do that, just let the trays pass. Hold on to the cups until we can all take it together. And let's just think about surrendering ourselves freshly to the Lord in humility as we sing.